When I was a teenager, I used to work at a grocery store called Foodland, and it was a dude land. And um, you guys already knew that, but I just like saying it that way. So I was at Foodland one day, and I was in the back room, and we, we were unloading a truck, and we were uh, putting, the, putting the stock on the conveyor belt going down to the basement because the storage room was in the basement. And normally when, I'm, when I was back there with my friend Joel, we were, we were waiting and hiding behind boxes for other stock boys to go back so we could wrap them in plastic and send them down the conveyor belt. But this time we were actually doing work, and we were unloading this truck. And as we were unloading the truck and putting it on the conveyor belt, Joel was, um, he was going through something and he's just sharing and he's so frustrated and he was just going through it and he's sharing you know about his life and I'm just listening to him and it's getting worse and worse and worse and he's and he's getting more and more agitated and finally he stops and he just goes he goes oh man there's just got to be something more to life than this you know and in that moment being a good little boy who grew up in church my whole life. I'm like, this is the time when you're supposed to share your faith. When people say things like, there must be more to life than this, right? And those people never say that, by the way. So it's like, when they say that, that's sort of like hitting a ball off a tee. You're supposed to be like, well, actually. And so I started thinking through my mind, how am I going to phrase this? How am I going to say this? And my whole brain just started racing in that moment. And so I turned to Joel and I looked at him and he said there's got to be something more to life than this right and I said yeah and I just kept on loading and stuff and I just kept loading the conveyor belt now it was a total strikeout I know it's difficult to strike out in t-ball but I did and um, it's because I was fixated on myself what am I going to say? How am I going to say this? Am I going to say it the right way? What if I say it the wrong way? What if he doesn't like what I said? What if he... At the end of the day, every thought that went through my mind was about me. And our text for this morning, as we've been working through Paul's letter to the Romans, is Romans chapter 10. This is a clear, uncomplicated call as gospel messengers to share the gospel. And thankfully... The gravity for salvation, the power for salvation, is not on the messengers. It is in the message. And yet we are clearly called to share the goodness of God's grace and his message. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read to uh, verse 17, and then I'm going to go to the end and read 21. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that's by the law. The person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message that is heard through the word about Christ. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is God's word. Now, this letter is not an academic exercise. You can get as you read through it, Paul is very passionate. He's very emotional. This is a very passionate and emotional section of the letter. His mind is engaged, but his heart is also being stirred at the really sad irony that those who had the word of God knew God least. And those who didn't know the, have the word of God came to know God most. And this isn't getting lost on Paul, and he's emotional about it. When you look at verse 1, verse 1 alone says, gives us a glimpse of the Spirit's work in Paul, and it gives us a glimpse of the Spirit's work in us. And here's it, here it is. As you look at verse 1, you're going to see there's a genuine care for those without the gospel. And there's genuine prayer towards those who don't have the gospel. And there's a genuine, genuine willingness to share with those who do not have the gospel. And we get this glimpse of an impassioned Paul, you know, wanting to see people come to faith in Christ. We're going to look at three things this morning from this text. You've got them in your notes there. The religious mess, the gracious message, and the willing messengers. But first, let's take a look at the, the religious mess. The religious mess is actually the context of the beginning of Paul's argument here. In verse 2 and 3, the religious mess he's referring to is that the people of God were convinced they could save themselves by keeping the law of God. They were passionate, but they were passionate about the wrong thing. In this case, salvation by rule-keeping. Right? He uses the word zealous, right? We, we don't use that word. We don't, you know, day-to-day. We, we talk about passion. But passion is not enough if your passion is not rooted in truth. And passion is not enough if your passion blinds you to reflection. And so what we find here is Paul is saying, yeah, their passion is misguided, and there's important insight that we're given, and the insight we're given is that God didn't hide himself causing their ignorance. Verse 21 says at the end, it says, all day long I held my hands out, all day long, and by all day, it's millennia. All day long, I, I held up my grace. I held up my hands to an obstinate people, these people who were ignorant. So why were they ignorant? They were ignorant. They were, I'm talking about the religious people, the religious folks who believe they could be saved, not by, not by the God who saved, not by his saving grace, but by keeping the law, by keeping the rules. Why were they ignorant? They were ignorant because it suited them that what they were passionately committed to, it suited them to remain ignorant. They were, they were passionately committed to this idea of keeping the law, so it suited them to be ignorant of the ways they were not keeping the law. It suited them to be ignorant that not only they, were they not keeping the law, but that nobody could keep the law. It suited them to be ignorant. It wasn't that God made them ignorant. And so, 
Our ignorance, if I was to expand upon this, because right now, this is a very specific religious problem that Paul's pointing at. He's like, they thought they could save themselves by the rule keeping and it suited them to be ignorant. But our passion, you can be passionate about different things and it can suit us to be ignorant of God's grace in other ways. There's two ways to run away from God, right? By the way, you can run away from God, as Paul's speaking about here, in a, in a religious way, and you can run away from God in a non-religious way. I'll give you the non, a non-religious example. Uh, I was watching an interview with uh, Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist, you know, brilliant, intelligent man, and he was asked, because he's you know, notorious and aggressively um, atheist, perhaps so aggressive that if, if you're here today and you are an atheist, you might say, hey, I'm not that kind of atheist, because he could, he could be abrasive. And so he was asked in the interview, um, you know, what if at the end of all this you found that God was real? Um, what would you say to him? And uh, Mr. Dawkins said, I would ask him why he went to such pains to hide himself. Let's think about this. Richard Dawkins, brilliant evolutionary biologist. I'm going to just pick another guy. Francis Collins, brilliant geneticist. And both are brilliant. Both are looking at similar data. And Richard Dawkins looks at all the data and he concludes that there's no rhyme or reason for the universe. And he writes a book called The Blind Watchmaker. Francis Collins looks at the same data, looks at, decodes the uh, human DNA with his team back in 2001 when Clinton and company put him in, hard, in charge of the genome project. And he looks at the same similar data, and he concludes that this is not, uh, that our existence is not a random, but that there is an intelligent design. And he writes a book not called The Blind Watchmaker, but called The Language of God. And so scientists such as Francis Collins would say, well, it suits you to be ignorant. It suits you to be ignorant because then you don't have to grapple with the implications of if there is a God and what does that mean. And if Jesus Christ actually rose from the grave and this isn't some sort of a fairy tale or a fable, what are the implications of that? I don't need to grapple with it if, I can, if it suits me to be uh, passionate about my life pursuit without reflection. The passion is not enough. Paul's argument is against the religious crowd, but I'm just giving you a non-religious ex- example of how we can do it uh, in the same way. It's, it's the ignorance, it, it suited them. And if you're here this morning and you're maybe new and exploring Christian faith... Know that whenever the Bible is talking about righteousness, like in this passage, it's not talking about a general morality, a general sense of just be a good person and love your neighbor. Because, of course, Christians don't have the market on that, right? You can't, it's not like, well, if you're a Christian, you're more moral than your neighbor. Not necessarily, that's not necessarily the case. That's not what the Bible's arguing about with righteousness. When it talks about righteousness, it's not general morality. It's saying you can stand before God and God can look down on you, the, the, the loving creator, perfect cosm- creator of the cosmos, and look down on you and say, you're justified. You have right standing before me. So what the Bible is saying is, nobody is living a life of that kind of perfect love. Nobody uh, is walking in that sort of moral, loving perfection. We need to trust in Jesus Christ so that united to him we're called righteous. So if you're exploring faith, that's what Paul's getting at when he's talking about this righteousness. They thought they could attain it by keeping the law, but you can't. That righteousness is only attained by trusting in Jesus. So that's what he's, that's what he's talking about. And when you get to verse 4, you'll find that it says that Jesus Christ is the culmination of the law, or some of your Bible translations says he's the end of the law. What does that mean? It means that, it doesn't mean that the guidance of God's law has ended. It means that God's law as a system of salvation has ended. What it means is that Jesus Christ coming, he's kept the law for us 
so that now God's law is a faithful guide for us, right? So now, as Christians, we keep it, but keeping it isn't saving us. That's why every week in our liturgy, when we're confessing our sin, we're taking time to think about the ways in which we have sinned and not been loving toward God, loving toward our neighbor, and we repent, and we ask for the Spirit's renewal. But we're doing all of that from a position of thankfulness because our sin is already forgiven in Christ. We're not, we're not confessing our sin every Sunday because between Monday and Saturday, we somehow undo our justification. So in verse 4, he says, it's the end of the law. It's the end of the law as the system of salvation. Then verses 5 through 8, he's quoting Moses. And why would Paul quote Moses? Because the law comes through Moses and grace came through Jesus Christ. So what's Paul doing? Quoting Moses. He quotes Moses because he wants to connect the dots. He wants to connect the dots of redemption and of grace because as you look at the quotes of Moses through verses 5 and 8 that Paul is, is uh, pulling from, here's what Moses knows and what Paul knows and what faith knows. And, and you see it in verses 6 and 7. You, you, you don't need to scale heaven because Christ came down to you from heaven. You can't deal with your own sin and inevitable death. Jesus Christ deals with sin and inevitable death. What Moses knew and what Paul knew Moses knew he couldn't keep the law. Moses knew the people couldn't keep the law. He kept holding out the law because the law was the means of getting them to trust in the grace of the God who gave the law. Nobody was ever saved by the law. So Moses is is quoted here as a way of getting us to look and see there's a bit of a religious mess if if your faith and trust isn't in Jesus Christ but is ultimately in the work of your own arm, of your own hand. And so this whole section of this passage, it actually goes against modern ideas about spirituality because many of our modern conversations about spirituality today sound like this. Hey, listen, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It doesn't matter what your doctrine is. Don't bother me with doctrine, right? It's just as long as you're sincere. No, I don't want anything to do with doctrine, which is ironically a doctrine, because the the word doctrine just means a systematic way of approaching things. So it's like my systematic way of approaching things is to not have a systematic way of approaching things. You see what I did there? Okay, so what's happening here is he's saying, no, actually, it's not sincerity. You can't just say, no, it's it's just as long as you're sincere. That's all that matters. As long as you're passionate and a loving person, that's what matters. Because what Paul is saying is you can be passionate about the wrong thing. You can be sincerely wrong. You can love the wrong thing. You can orbit your life around the wrong thing. Those things can't be enough. And everything that I'm saying right now is highly offensive and hard to hear because it sounds like, well, that's just so exclusive. The Christ alone bus of Jesus Christ being the only way to find ultimate salvation, peace in my soul, my heart, my mind. It isn't something that I can do by orbiting my life around my religious works. And it isn't something I can do by forsaking Jesus and orbiting my life around anything else. We don't like how it sounds because it, you know, modern conversations say that's just so narrow. So let's think about this. If we say that to believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone is narrow, we say, well, that is too narrow. Instead, it's just not, it can't just be one religion, this one around the Jesus Christ guy. Let's say all religions are equally good. Or let's say all religions are equally ridiculous. Both of those statements are just as exclusive. 
If I say Jesus Christ is the only way, which Paul is saying, that's exclusive. And if you say, no, it's not Jesus Christ. He's not the only way. Everybody's way is, is fine. Well, that's also exclusive because you're, you're basically saying that exclusive claim says you have knowledge that Christ is the only way and my knowledge says every way is okay. Or every way is ridiculous. They're all false. You can't just replace one exclusive truth claim with another and say, there, it's not narrow anymore. Let's talk about narrowness like this. Think about it this way. You're sick. You wake up every day and you're sick and you're tired of being sick. And so you talk to all your friends and they're like, hey, pick a diet that works for you. Pick an exercise regime that works for you and you'll be fine. Here's what I'm doing. So you try what they're doing. Then you go to your next friend, your next friend. I read a blog. I did a thing. I listened to this podcast. I read 10,000 books. And so everybody's giving you their opinions on, on how to improve your health. And it doesn't matter who you talk to. They're all just saying, pick a diet that works for you, pick exercise that works for you, just pick something that works for you, and you'll be fine. Your friends are saying the same thing, all the doctors are saying the same thing, all of a sudden you go to this one doctor, and the doctor diagnoses you and goes, hold on a second, you can't just pick any diet, you can't just pick any exercise, you have a rare condition that I need, I'm the only one that can, that can provide surgery, you, you need surgery, you need me to do the surgery, nobody else can do the surgery, and if I don't do the surgery, you're going to die. What's your response to that going to be? That's so narrow. You're so narrow. It's really not a conversation about narrowness, is it? They're either wrong or they're right. And you should probably find out if they're wrong or they're right. But do you know how easy it is for just to, us to just dismiss things by saying they're narrow? I don't even need to grapple with whether it's true or not. Oh, that's so narrow. You see, narrow, the argument of narrowness is just a way of not, of not grappling with the gravity of the argument that's on the table. If you just go, that's so narrow. That's not an argument, that's a sneer, and there's a difference. There's a difference between an argument and sneering. And so Paul gives us this picture and says, you can be passionate about the wrong thing. And, you need, and, and, and in the case of uh, the people of God, our passion needs to be directed towards Christ alone. And not, not by the means of us saving ourselves by our, by our own work. And maybe you're here today and, and you'd say, well, none of this really applies to me because I'm not religious. I'm, I'm here today because I'm supporting a friend or came with a friend or I'm, uh, I'm considering Christian faith and I'm wondering about it. But I'm not a religious person. Uh, here's what I would invite you to consider. The word religious, again, like doctrine being a systematic way of teaching something. The word religion or religious, it just means... This is the system in which I go about my life. There are a set of principles that I value as utmost, and I orient my life around that. So that's my religion. So it, your religion can be hockey or your career or your education or your whatever. It can be your hobbies. It can be your, your friend group getting together every Thursday night for you know, uh, having a glass of wine and talking about a book you read recently. It's all, it's all religion. It's all just a, the way in which I organize and orbit my life. And so what I'd encourage you to consider, because here I am talking about salvation, is that whatever you get out of bed to live for in the morning, whatever that thing is, that is your salvation. That is the means of you curating a sense of meaning and identity. So this is our religious mess. And then, thankfully, our religious mess has been met with a gracious message. When you get to verse 8, he says that the word is near you, it's in, your, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. And this is the message of faith that we proclaim. It's this, again, he's quoting Moses to, to show us 
how, how he's connecting the dots between law and grace. That nobody's ever been saved by keeping God's law, but only his grace. If you trust in God's grace, then you are no longer obeying his law to absolve you of your guilt. Right? We are all obeying the law from gratitude of the one who has already absolved our guilt. And that's kind of verse 8. And when you look at, when he says that this word is near us, look at verse 8 and verse 9. It says, this word is near us. And then verse 9 says how it saved us. Right? Believing in the person of Christ and the work of Christ. The person of Christ is in the phrase, Jesus is Lord. And the work of Christ is in the phrase, God raised him from the dead. The person and the work uh, together of Christ. There's this, um, uh, this little franchise trying to get, it, get off the ground called Star Wars. I don't know if you've heard of it. Anyway, uh, it's like this little space story. Uh, but they, they, they had this movie that came out every Christmas because this is Disney's thing. Now, Merry Christmas. There's Star Wars movies until the return of our Lord. So, uh, Rise of Skywalker. Mixed reviews on Rise of Skywalker. Um, so I'll just cut through all of that and tell you it was really great. It was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Right? Stop being so serious when you go to the movies. Relax. Okay, so um, in the Rise of Skywalker, in the Star, Star Wars universe, there's all this language around the supreme leader. Only every time I'd said it, I was like, the supreme leader. Um, the supreme leader. The rise to power. The, um, this idea of the emperor being the supreme leader. And that's all language that's uh, lifted, not, not solely from uh, the ancient Roman world, but definitely is present in the ancient Roman world where kurios, which is the word for lord, that they would say Caesar is lord, Kaiser at kurios, is the supreme leader, the supreme powers, this idea of, uh, of uh, absolute and ultimate supremacy. And what the early Christians would do is they would say that not that Caesar is Lord, but that Christ is Lord. Christos at Kurios. He is the supreme leader. And what Paul is getting at here in verses 8 and 9 is there's a gracious message that comes to meet us in this, this religious mass. And the gracious message is that Christ has come, of course, to, to, uh, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The claim that he is Lord, this claim to his deity and his authority, the good news that... Uh, God has raised him from the dead. Again, we on just on Thursday night, we got together, a handful of us, uh, Uptown Waterloo, to have a faith and reason event and dialogue around this. Is it reasonable to believe that somebody raised from, the, raised from the dead? Is that not science fiction? Can you be an intelligent person? Can you be uh, you know, a, a reasonable individual and believe in the phenomena of the resurrection? And what Paul is getting at here in 57 AD, so it's, there's still people alive, many, who had witnessed the resurrection, and he's, he's, he's poking at the reality that Jesus Christ is who he actually said he was. You can't just lump him in the group of other messiahs that came and said they were going to deliver national Israel, right? There was about 11. Um, I'm, I'm quoting uh, Dr. Samuel Lamerson, who's the professor of New Testament theology at Knox, and in one of the lectures he was giving us, he was saying that there was about 11 people who claimed to be the Messiah before and after Jesus, and uh, they all died. And after they died, the movement died. But after Jesus died, um, the movement exploded. Why did it explode? Well, not just because he was you know, a martyr and they decided to you know, tell grandiose stories, but because history records that the tomb is empty. That's a historical fact. The reason why controversies exist around the empty tomb is because nobody's arguing it was empty. 
We're just having dialogue around why was it empty. So here you are, 57 AD, Paul's writing to the Romans, and he's saying, if you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you have to remember that, 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 that Christian faith had exploded through Rome because hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses had seen the resurrected Jesus, and they were attesting to the, uh, to the news of the resurrected Jesus. And so the faith uh, movement of, of uh, Christianity, faith in Christ and his resurrection, was exploding through, through, um, th- through Rome. Even seven short years after Paul wrote this letter, Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, uh, wrote a letter. And I've quoted it before, so I'm not going to quote it now. But he, Tacitus wrote a letter saying that there's this explosion of the, the superstition of the resurrection that had blown out in Rome. And so to confess with your mouth and to believe with your heart, it doesn't mean that your heart is purified perfectly. It doesn't mean that we comprehend God perfectly. It's a trust transfer. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. That's a trust transfer. That's not a comprehensive knowledge. All of us are continually growing in our knowledge of the goodness of God and understanding of his scriptures. Right? Charles Hodges was a famous Presbyterian theologian who said, the gospel is so simple a child can understand it, and yet it's so endlessly rich that the wisest theologians will never exhaust its depths, which is true. So when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's not this comprehensive understanding, it's this trust transfer. It is stop trusting in our own efforts to be righteous, trusting in Jesus that he is our righteousness. Or if you're here today and your faith isn't in Christ, it's stop trusting in whatever it is that you've told yourself life is all about. And make a trust transfer to the omnipotent God of the, creator, of the universe, the creator of the universe who has us in his very hands, who, through Jesus Christ, has ensured that the end of our life is not death and darkness in a grave, but life and light in God. And so there's this call to this trust transfer. When you look at um, an example of somebody who made this trust transfer, even while they were grappling with it, it'd be Mark chapter 9. Jesus is about to perform a miracle for this man. His son is, is demonized. And Jesus says to the man, do you believe I can do this? And the man says to Jesus, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus' response to that isn't, oh, well, you see, that's not, you just jinxed it. So that's not what happened at all. Because Jesus looks at him, and he says, do you believe I can do this? And the man makes a trust transfer. Yeah, I do believe. I do believe you can do this. And I'm really grappling with my belief because what you're asking me to believe is phenomenal. So in my heart, yeah, I can transfer my trust. I can transfer my trust from the smallness of what it is to be human, the limitedness of this life, of this shortness, the cosmic shortness of our existence, I can shift away from that to a great God who spun the universe into existence. I can can make that shift. I believe and help my unbelief. God receives that. The humbleness uh, of the genuineness and the honesty of of that faith. There's no airtight comprehensive understandings but this transfer of trust and in verse 13 it says that everyone who calls upon the name of the lord will be saved regardless of who you are regardless of what you've done not a certain kind of person is received by jesus not a certain culture every culture every kind of person 
has come to faith in Christ and will continually come to faith in Christ. But how do you do this? If the only thing we can do is call out to him, if the only because this passage establishes we can't just live a good moral life and that be good in the end. We have to trust in Jesus Christ. But how can we, how can we do this? We can only do it by calling on him, which leads us to the final thing. You've got a religious mess that's mess, met with a gracious message, and then you've got these willing messengers. You know, in verse 14, when you look, at, uh, look back at verse uh, 14, it says, how are they going to believe, you know, unless they've heard and unless somebody preaches, unless they're sent? And, you know, St. Francis of Assisi made a famous, um, a famous quote, said a lot of really good things, but then he said this thing, which isn't a good thing, but he said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Which sounds so fantastic. Like, yes, it's great. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. In other words, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters how you live. No. That's not the gospel. It does matter how we live. But living a loving life is not the gospel. Living a loving life is a result of the gospel. The gospel is a particular, specific set of words. It's a message. It's what Paul's getting after here. The life that we are living is not the gospel. Separating ourselves in a particular way, this is not the gospel. The gospel is a specific set of words. It's sharing the goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. And so what Assisi was trying to get at was love people with your life. And to that point, I agree. But the gospel is, by its own definition, using a specific set of words. It is a specific message. It's not mystical. Paul says, how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? So it's not mystical. It's hearing something very specific, the message that by God's grace he uses because it has the power so that we don't obsess over ourselves like I did back in Foodland. of like, what if I say this the wrong way? What if I say this? Why is this? I was just obsessing over me. But the power is not in me, the messenger. I just need to be a willing messenger. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the God of the gospel. The text goes on to say, how are they going to hear without, without a preacher? And maybe at this point you'll say, Okay, well, you lost me because I'm not a preacher, so I, this doesn't apply to me because there are preachers and there are people with big mouths who stand behind pulpits. Those are preachers. Okay, true in, in one sense. But what this is actually, what Paul's getting at here, the Greek word for, for preacher is uh, kariso, which means to announce something with confidence. And this isn't anything new because they had heralds in the streets. They were used to heralds announcing things all the time. So Paul's just saying, you're a herald. People are announcing things with confidence in our culture all the time. They're announcing things with confidence. And so what what are we called to do? We're called to announce with confidence the hope that we have. So when Paul Paul didn't make up a new religious word that nobody had ever heard of, how are they going to hear without a preacher? Oh, a preacher, what's that? No, they already knew what it was. They're like, oh, I'm that now? We're already evangelists for things that we love. If If you're ever in New York City and you want to know where the greatest red velvet cheesecake is in New York City, Susan will tell you, because she's an evangelist of the red velvet cheesecake in New York City. She will lead you to the cheesecake. She will show you where it is. It's in the basement of the plaza, by the way. So when you are passionate about something, when something has changed your life, even more so than red velvet cheesecake, if you can imagine such a thing, you will will passionately and confidently... um, Bear witness to it. And so this is what Paul's getting at. And then, he's, and then he gives the word sent, which is the same word for the word apostle. And of course, we don't have apostolic authority. The apostles did. But we have the same apostolic message. And therefore, the message has authority and the message has power. And you and I, who are called in this text to share the good news of God's grace in the city, 
We do that from a real place of humility and rest. Because we're not better than anybody. We're not here because we may, we're, we're more humble than they are and we made a choice to bent our knee to Jesus and they didn't. That's, we're here by, because of God's grace, full stop. And we're called to go and be humble messengers of his grace in the city. And I want you to just, before I close the, the, in prayer here, I want to encourage you to just put yourself in these Roman sandals for a second, okay? Because you and I grapple with being sent out as messengers, right? Oh, well, can I? I'm not sure. And we've got all of our reasons why this is a very intimidating, difficult thing. Just imagine that first church in Rome sitting down and they're like, hey, guys, Phoebe's here. Uh, she's got a letter. Thanks, Phoebe. Uh, say hi to Paul for us. Uh, we're just going to read this and they, they get to this part. And it's like, yeah, you guys got to go out into Rome and share this message. And they're sitting there, and some of them are new believers. And they're like, man, last week I was worshiping like Mars and Jupiter and Minerva. And now I'm, now I'm supposed to be a messenger of the... Just, just imagine for a moment how, how unqualified they would have felt hearing this for the first time. Oh, man, I can't share the gospel in Rome. All of my friends have Aristotelian, you know, virtue ethics. And, they, and this guy's got a platonic, you know, education. Actually, as I think about it, most of my friends have platonic educations. They all think they're being saved by their political science and their virtue ethics and um, their, their, um, their values of justice and mercy as Aristotle and, you know, Plato, you know, spoke of them in the city. They think that's saving them. I can't go and talk to these educate. Does any of this sound familiar? We are, we are first century Rome. Again, being sent out into the city to share the good news of the gospel. But what did they do? What, how did the gospel explode across cultural and socioeconomic lines? How did it happen? Did it happen with the small band of theological Jedi that worked their way through Rome? No, it was not theological Jedi. It was this scrappy little rebellion of people who were like, well, my granddaddy saw the resurrected Jesus is good enough for me, and they were just bearing witness of the gospel. They were attesting to the Spirit's work on their own life and they were going and they were sharing the good news of the gospel and they weren't, you know, just loving their neighbor. And my encouragement to you as I close the sermon today, did I say that already? Is this my second closing? My bad. As I close the sermon, oh, that's my third closing. Okay, I won't say it again. As I close the sermon today, um, it's not making it weird and Jesus juking conversations. It's loving our neighbors, loving those at work, taking time to get to know them and just be a part of their lives so that when there's an opportunity to share our faith, it isn't this manufactured thing. We're not, people are not projects. We love them. We care about them. And, and we have these glorious opportunities to share with them the rest that we enjoy, the rest that their soul craves, that they've oriented around some other small temporal thing that one day is going to rust and break and be done or whatever or... or or be buried in a cemetery. And we're simply giving, giving hope for this. It's not weirdly Jesus-juking conversations and, and, you know, kind of making it awkward. Hey, you know, Super Bowl's next Sunday. Yeah, I was pulling for the Titans, uh, but the Titans are going to... You know, speaking of Titans, the Greek mythology of the Titans, and actually, as I think about that, that makes me think about some of this, you know, weird creation stories, eh, in Greek mythology, but that makes me think that there's actually a God of the... Actually, I believe in the God of the Bible. What, what are we doing? How did we get here? It's not being weird about it. It's just loving people, being in their lives, and looking for these opportunities to share the good news of the gospel, being messengers of the gospel. It's not about looking to craft a perfectly, you know, crafted, defining gospel moment, but it's just being a willing messenger that God uses in beautiful moments.
Uh, he says that our feet are beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of those who sent. And it's not trying to get you to imagine designer sandals and a pedicure when it says beautiful feet. In the Greek, be- it's beautiful because it's timely. It's always timely. In church, we need to remember this because quite often we think, did I, do, did I share that well or not? Did that go well or not? The answer is it was timely. The power isn't in us. The power is in the message. And every time we share the message in love and in grace, regardless of the response that is received, they're doing it with, 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 with love and humility in our hearts. It is timely because the Spirit can use the good news of the gospel to continually to do his, his saving work. And how then will they believe unless they have heard? And how will they hear without one preaching to them? And how will they hear unless one is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray.